Hello and welcome to another edition of the Informa Pharma Intelligence Analyst Podcast. My name is Zach. Uh, today I am joined by the entire oncology team that covered ESMO this year, which will be our topic. Uh, I'm joined by Tara Hansen. Hi, everyone. Also joined by David DeHaan. Hello. And Tom Tyler. Hey, guys. So as mentioned, we're going to be discussing the European Society of Medical Oncology conference was held virtually this year because of the pandemic, Uh, but we covered it. And we also recently published the post-ESMO report, which has more in-depth details on the topics we will discuss today, as well as many others presented at the meeting. So check that out on Biomed Tracker or Data Monitor Healthcare. Uh, today we're going to discuss the LEAP-005 data in solid tumors, hepatocertib in metastatic castration prostate cancer, Vivencio in head and neck cancer, Decentric in triple negative breast cancer, Opdivo in esophageal and gastric cancer, as well as Lorbrena in non-small cell lung cancer. So a lot to cover. We can get started right away, and I'll toss it over to you, David. All right, great. Uh, so I'm going to start off with late-breaking abstract 41. Um, in this abstract, Merck and ASI presented the first results from LEAP-005, a phase two basket trial evaluating the anti-angiogenic kinase inhibitor Linvima combined with Keytruda in a variety of solid tumor indications. As a reminder, Linvima is approved as a single agent for thyroid cancer and first-line liver cancer. It is also approved in combination with the mTOR inhibitor Afinitor for second-line renal cancer and in combination with Keytruda for endometrial cancer. Um, so getting back to the basket trial, the combination with Keytruda was evaluated in six cohorts. Um, so patients with triple negative breast cancer, glioblastoma, ovarian, gastric, colorectal, and biliary tract cancer. And the study enrolled approximately 30 patients in each cohort. The best responses were seen in second line or third line triple negative breast cancer with an overall response rate of 29% and a median PFS of 4.2 months and fourth-line ovarian cancer with an overall response rate of 32% and a median PFS of 4.4 months. Both of these segments represent an area of unmet need, and so it is encouraging to see activity here. Um, There is also activity in third-line colorectal cancer with an overall response rate of 22% and a median PFS of 2.3 months, and second-line glioblastoma with an overall response rate of 16% and a median PFS of 2.8 months. Finally, the response rate was only 10% for both second-line biliary tract cancer, um, an indication without many options, um, and third-line gastric cancer. Uh, Company officials have indicated they will continue to evaluate this combination and will expand each of these cohorts to 100 patients each. They also noted that the the results in ovarian cancer and colorectal cancer were particularly interesting. Okay, so what was the safety data like for this combination? So safety was not great, uh, but it was acceptable. Uh, Grade three to five treatment-related adverse adverse events occurred in approximately half of all patients, with one grade five event in each cohort, except the biliary tract cohort, which reported no grade five events. Uh, Discontinuation due to an an adverse event was five to 10% across the different cohorts, which isn't too bad. Um, Finally, immune-mediated adverse events occurred in 25 to 50% of patients, uh, but only 3 to 6% of patients had a grade 3 or higher immune-mediated adverse event. 
So David, are checkpoint inhibitors active as monotherapies for any of these indications? So as a monotherapy, checkpoint inhibitors are approved for colorectal cancer and, and gastric con cancer, but only for the minority of patients categorized as a microsatellite instability high or with defective mismatch repair. Um, the LEAP-5 enrolled colorectal <coughs> cancer patients that were non-microsatellite instability high and were mismatch repair proficient. So the colorectal cancer patients were not eligible um, uh, for these checkpoint inhibitors. Um, otherwise, for the other indications, um, checkpoint inhibitors are either approved or being investigated in phase three trials, but only as combinations, usually with chemotherapy. Right, so are there any phase three trials evaluating Linvima specifically combined with a checkpoint inhibitor? Um, yeah, there are lots of ongoing phase three trials. Um, in the first line setting, this combination is being investigated for uh, bladder, head and neck, liver, melanoma, and renal cancer. Um, there's also a phase three trial for non-small cell lung cancer pre previously treated with a checkpoint inhibitor. Um, and at ESMO, we saw uh, another late-breaking abstract, LBA44, um, had positive results from a potentially pivotal phase two trial investigating the lenvima kintruda combination in melanoma patients um, who had progressed after a checkpoint inhibitor. In this setting, the overall response rate was 21% with a median PFS of four months and a median overall survival of 14 months, which is very encouraging. Um, so, you know, it looks like Advima is set to build on its success and it uh, looks like it has a bright future. Great. Thanks, David. I think that's all the questions. We can move on to the next topic, which is mine. Uh, and that is the pivotal phase three a potential 150 trial of apatacertib in metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer. Uh, so back in June, it was announced that apatacertib plus abiraterone met the primary endpoint in this trial by significantly improving radiographic PFS over placebo and abiraterone in previously untreated metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer patients with P10 loss as determined by IHC, uh, but the combination did fail to pass statistical significance in the intent to treat group. And then at ESMO this year, the first numerical results were released and showed the combination increased radiographic PFS to 18.5 months from 16.5 months in the P10 loss patients with a hazard ratio of 0.77. So this two month increase in the first line setting for P10 loss patients is clinically significant and it's bolstered by key secondary endpoints, including confirmed overall response rate and PSA response rate. Secondary endpoints for time to pain progression and time to subsequent chemotherapy were not yet mature, but the curves separate fairly early and trended toward the combination arm. Similarly, OS outcomes were not yet mature with approximately 40% of events accumulated. Uh, interestingly, uh, the P10 loss group identified by next generation sequencing in the trial had an improved response to the apatacertive combination and achieved a numerically greater radiographic PFS increase of 4.9 months. NGS was undertaken in approximately one quarter of the trial population, so it is a smaller sample size, but a discussant for the presentation uh, did mention that they favored this approach to best identify the P10 subgroup going forward. Hopefully we get more data in a larger sample of NGS sampled patients. As far as what's next, Roche previously committed to submitting regulatory filings by the end of 2020, uh, and eventual approval would make Ipatacertib the first PI3K AKTM TOR pathway inhibitor to reach the prostate cancer market.
and that's it. So how big is the P10 loss population in prostate cancer? Good question. So P10 loss is associated with approximately 20 to 25% of primary prostate cancers. Uh, those are typically localized prostate cancers, uh, but that prevalence increases to about 40 to 50% of castration resistant tumors, uh, according to a few studies. Uh, and it's also associated with more aggressive disease and poor recurrence-free survival. Uh, so this represents a pretty attractive segment and a population with a relatively unmet need. So what does the safety profile look like for this therapy? So the side effect profile was uh, acceptable. Uh, the drug is beset by known PI3K AKTM tor class toxicities such as diarrhea, uh, which occurred in at grade three or higher in 10% of patients. Uh, grade three rash was also seen in around 14% of patients. And then ALT, AST elevations at grade three or above were seen in approximately eight and 5% of patients respectively. Uh, there was also hyperglycemia, uh, which occurred in around 10% of patients uh, at grade three. Uh, this did lead to a discontinuation rate of around 21% in the combination arm compared to only 5% in the placebo or comparator arm, and dose reductions were needed in 40% of the hepatocertive treated patients compared to only 6% in the comparator arm. So these sorts of toxicities in conjunction with limited efficacy have doomed other PI3K inhibitors in the past in various solid tumors, uh, but the efficacy of hepatocertive demonstrated here is such that it should balance out the tox and, and be deemed an acceptable efficacy safety profile going forward. Uh, in addition, in the real world setting, uh, prophylactics for rash and diarrhea might be used to sort of mitigate those toxicities. Now that might increase the treatment burden, uh, both financial and clinical, uh, and could negatively impact the outlook for this drug, but there are ways to mitigate some of those toxicities. So where would this drug fit into the treatment paradigm for prostate cancer? Yeah, that's definitely a good question. So testing for P10 loss is not a recommended diagnostic procedure at this time. So it remains a bit undetermined how easily or how likely physicians may be willing to add on hepatocertive to abiraterone-treated patients. Uh, this is considering that it only gets approved in P10 loss patients, which would seem likely at this point, obviously. Um, uh, so there will probably be a bit of a lag there in terms of uptake. Um, but it was tested in the frontline setting for metastatic castration-resistant patients alongside a standard option abiraterone. So there is uh, theoretically a place for it to generate some significant share uh, considering the size of the P10 loss population. So is Roche developing hepatocertib in other prostate cancer settings? Uh, not in late phase development as of yet. So there is uh, one phase one study testing hepatocertib in combination with rubraca or rucaparib, uh, the PARP inhibitor, uh, and that's being tested in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer patients as well uh, and some other solid tumors. So there's limited expansion potential uh, that can be expected for hepatocertib, at least in prostate cancer, for the near future. But Definitely some positive results in combination with abiraterone in the first line setting. 
All right. If that's it for questions, we can move on to the next topic. Yeah. So the next topic is mine, which is uh, Bavencio in head and neck cancer. Specifically, we're looking at the uh, the trial results announced at ESMO for the Javelin Head and Neck 100 trial, which assessed Bavencio of Alimab alongside chemoradiotherapy against chemoradiotherapy alongside placebo in locally advanced unresectable squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck. So these are the first quantitative results we've got from Javelin 100, and it's not good. We already knew that it failed to reach the primary endpoint of PFS, as was announced roughly two months ago. But a look at the hazard ratios announced in this, uh, in, in this announcement show us that survival, both PFS and OFS, trended lower in the Evalumab and CRT, uh, in the Evalumab and CRT treatment group than in those who receive chemoradiotherapy and placebo. Now, this is interesting because head and neck cancers are highly immunogenic and the PD-1 inhibitors, Opdivo and Keytruda, are already well established in the metastatic recurrent setting. And there are now ongoing attempts of which, uh, of which this trial was one to expand them to the locally advanced setting where the standard of care currently is adjuvant or neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy for resectable disease or a program of chemoradiotherapy for unresectable disease. So it, prevents, it presents a large unmet need. So Tom, following this trial's failure, what is the future of Bavencio and head and neck cancer? Well, Unfortunately, it's pretty much the end of the road. There, there is a small phase one trial with Bempagada's lucin, but that's uh, that's a more general tumor agnostic trial um, with very few participants. So it's looking like at this stage, this will be the last serious attempt to get the Vencio approved in the indication for quite some time. Interesting. So what about other trials investigating PD-1L1 inhibitors in this setting for head and neck cancer? So most importantly, there is Keynote 412, which uh, is looking at Keytruda alongside chemoradiotherapy in unresectable locally advanced disease. Now this is, as you may have gathered, entirely the same setting as Javelin Head and Neck 100. And then further to that, you also have two trials in resectable disease. So you have another one involving Keytruda, that's Keynote 689, which investigates Keytruda as a pre- and post-operative regime. And then you have Invoke 010, which is T-centric as a purely adjuvant regimen. So, Tom, how do you think these trials will be impacted by this result? So, for Keynote 412, which is in precisely the same setting as uh, this Bavencio trial, you would initially imagine this to be good news in that it gets rid of one of Keytruda's likely main competitors. But you also need to consider the fact that even though Keytruda often performed better than Bavencio, the magnitude of the failure seen in this trial with a lower survival in those treated with anti-PDL1 uh, interventions may say something about the efficacy of this drug class in the locally advanced uh, squamous cell carcinoma of the head and neck setting as a whole. So in light of that, these results actually might be quite worrying for Merck. 
Now, with regard to the other two uh, trials, Keynote 689 and Invoke 010, these are a slightly different setting. These are looking at um, PD-1 or PDL one monotherapies for resectable disease. So it's harder to generalize, but it's possible you may raise some of the same concerns. So if the PD-1 inhibitors do turn out to be ineffective in locally advanced disease, what will be the impact on the treatment landscape? Uh, the impact will be pretty big because almost all meaningful investigations into locally advanced squamous cell carcinomas of the head and neck are anti-PD-1 or PDL one There is multikine, which is this cocktail of immunocytokines, but its development and its uh, in its phase three trial has been rocked by a suite of delays and suspensions going back to 2010, I believe. So that remains something of an unknown quantity. Now, another thing you might see is Herbitux, Cetuximab, which was previously being displaced in almost every setting by PD-1 inhibitors in head and neck cancer, may, f may be able to find itself a niche with its existing regimen of Herbitux as a maintenance therapy following chemoradiotherapy and locally advanced disease. All right, if that's it for questions, we can move on to the next topic. Okay, so let's see, at, Ro at ESMO, Roche presented a highly anticipated update on the phase three Impassion 131 study of Tocentric in combination with paclitaxel as a first-line treatment for unresectable, locally advanced, or metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And then Roche also presented an update from the pivotal phase three Impassion 130 study which supported the accelerated approval of Tocentric in combination with Abraxane last year. So I'm going to be covering both, but I'll start with Impassion 130. So since the Tocentric and Abraxane combination was approved based on progression-free survival data from this study, it's become the first-line standard of care for triple-negative patients whose tumors express PDL1. And at ESMO, Roche presented overall survival data. And fortunately, since there was no statistical difference in overall survival between the treatment groups in the intention to treat population, they couldn't conduct statistical testing for the PDL1 population due to the hierarchical design of the study. But in the PDL1 positive subgroup, the median overall survival in the decentric arm was 25.4 months, which was an increase of 7.5 months over the median overall survival of 17.9 months seen in the placebo arm. So although these results couldn't be tested for statistical significance, the difference is still very much clinic clinically meaningful and supports the continued use of the combination in the first-line setting. And then, in a surprising twist, the full numerical results from the Phase 3 Impassion 131 study of Tocentric in combination with paclitaxel versus paclitaxel monotherapy were pretty much uniformly negative. So there was no significant improvement in either progression-free survival or overall response rate in the PDL1 population. Concerningly, there is actually a negative overall survival trend with both the first interim overall survival analysis and the updated interim overall survival analysis demonstrating hazard ratios above one. So in the updated interim overall survival analysis, the median survival for the tocentric arm was 22.1 months, over six months shorter than the median overall survival of 28.3 months in the placebo arm. So while these results 
were not statistically significant and are still immature, at this point, the data do rule out the possibility of a dysentric paclitaxel combination getting approved. And in fact, in response to this trial failure, the FDA recently issued guidance recommending against replacing Abraxane with paclitaxel in clinical practice. Wow. So uh, what other implications are there for this trial failure for Tycentric? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, unfortunately, this trial failure does put Tycentric at a disadvantage to competitor Keytruda. Keytruda is expected to receive an accelerated approval in the first-line setting later this year. On the Phase 3 Keynote 355 study, Keytruda in combination with chemotherapy, which could be Abraxane, Paclitaxel, or Gemcitabine and Carboplatin, met the primary co-endpoint of progression-free survival in the cohort of patients with a pdl one CPS score of greater than or equal to 10. So, Tycentric does have the advantage of provider familiarity and the first-to-market status, but based on these results, it's probably going to struggle to retain market share given the variety of possible chemotherapy backbone options for Keytruda. Um, additionally, even though the Tycentric and Abraxane combination does still have good efficacy results and did show that overall survival increase, I think the results from Impassion 131 probably shook confidence in Tycentric a little bit. Sort of taking this as a whole, then, how has this impacted Roche's development plan for Tycentric in triple negative breast cancer? Um, so right now, Roche is still investigating Tycentric in combination with both Abraxane and Paclitaxel in the neoadjuvant setting uh, in the Phase 3 Impassion 31 and 30 trials, respectively. The pathological complete response results from Impassion 31 were actually presented at ESMO this year, um, and this is for your Tycentric in combination with Abraxane. So those results were definitely promising, but more mature data are needed to determine how competitive this combination will be against the Keytruda-based regimen uh, that's currently under regulatory review for this treatment setting. And then Impassion 30, which is testing Tycentric in combination with Paclitaxel in the neoadjuvant setting, uh, it's still enrolling patients, and I think the results from that trial are definitely going to be highly anticipated. Very interesting. Thank you, Tara. Uh, I think the next topic is yours, Tom? Yeah, it is. Um, so at ESMO, we also saw first numerical results from Checkmate 649. Uh, so this is a trial, a pretty big one, that covers two of our indications, uh, esophageal cancer and gastric cancer. And it looked at um, nivolumab alongside chemotherapy and also uh, nivolumab alongside its auxiliary drug, Yervoy, uh, in a dual PD-1 CTLA-4 uh, blockade program in HER2 negative frontline gastric cancer and frontline uh, gastro, gastroesophageal junction and esophageal adenocarcinoma. So we only got results from the from the arm of Opdivo alongside chemotherapy, and what we saw there is quite important. Uh, so we got a significant OS improvement in all PDL1 positive patients with a CPS of above one, and then we also saw a PFS improvement, but this was only confined to patients with a CPS of above five, 
which might restrict use, it's unclear at this point. Uh, now, this is a big deal because currently, as things stand, there are no targeted treatments for the 80% of frontline gastric and esophageal cancers who do not overexpress HER2. Those who do overexpress HER2 are met currently by trastuzumab and other HER2 blockers, but at this point, this stands as the single largest area of unmet need in the disease. Uh, because of this unmet need, especially in gastric cancer, there are multiple other agents in investigation for the setting. Now, of particular importance that I'd like to talk, talk about today is uh, Obdivo's perennial rival, the PD-1 inhibitor, Keytruda, whose Keynote 590 trial in frontline HER2-negative esophageal and gastroesophageal uh, cancer also announced results at ESMO. And so together, these two drugs are the first targeted agents to show a benefit in this setting. Thanks, Tom. Um, do we have the breakdown of efficacy between gastric cancer and gastroesophageal junction cancer patients? Uh, no, we do not yet. Uh, I agree it would be useful, but almost all gastric cancers are adenocarcinomas, uh, which are histologically very similar and treated very similarly to uh, gastroesophageal junction and esophageal uh, adenocarcinomas. So at this point, I think it's okay. And then sort of going back to the Keytruda comparison, how do these results compare with Keynote Find 90? Now, this is the key question. Uh, so looking at it overall, the efficacy appears to be similar, as is often the case with Opdivo and Keytruda. However, there are two key differences. Keynote 590 also included esophageal squamous cell carcinomas, which are the most common histological subtype alongside esophageal adenocarcinomas. And the second most important, and the, and the second uh, important distinction is that there are, there, is that although there was no breakdown between histologies in Keynote 590, uh, so it's not fully clear yet, it appeared to be that in the pooled sample of both histologies, the benefit was only reported in pdl one positive patients with a CPS of above 10, which is more restrictive than the CPS of above 5 seen in Checkmate 649. So what would this mean for Opdivo's performance in gastric cancer and esophageal cancer compared to Keytruda? So you've, you've got to break this answer up into between the two indications covered. So in gastric cancer, it's pretty uniformly good. Keynote 590 did not include gastric cancers. And although Keynote Keytruda is being separately investigated in frontline HER2 negative gastric cancers in the ongoing Keynote A59 trial, this trial was only initiated after the abortive Keynote 062 trial. So approval of Keytruda in that indication is comparatively, comparatively distant. However, this doesn't mean that Obdivo will be without competition. Um, one, one drug that springs to mind is the Claudin-18 inhibitor Zolbituximab, which has performed thus far quite impressively in frontline gastric cancer. Now, in esophageal cancer, the image is a little bit more complex. So if these results hold, it will likely result in the two drugs occupying largely different niches within the frontline uh, esophageal cancer setting. So 
simply speaking, Opdiva would be restricted by histology being unavailable in esophageal squamous cell carcinomas, whereas Keytruda would be restricted more by PDL1 status. As such, competition would be concentrated in a minority of very highly immunogenic esophageal adenocarcinomas. More broadly in the indication, however, Opdivo is also likely to be buoyed by the results of Checkmate 577, again also released in, uh, in ESMO. This saw the doubling of disease-free survival in adjuvant treatment of locally advanced esophageal cancer, which is also an area of very high unmet need, partly due to the very high rates of recurrence in esophageal cancer. So, uh, Tom, apart from Keytruda and Opdivo, are there any other PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors being investigated for the setting? Well, there is Beijing's PD-1 inhibitor, Tizlilizumab, which is in late-stage investigation for gastroesophageal uh, junction adenocarcinoma and esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. But at this point, the drug is still very much an unknown quantity. We have no phase three data. And we also don't have any approvals for the drug in any indication in our covered markets of Europe, Japan, North America. So what further data would you want to see from Checkmate 649 for a more complete assessment? So I mentioned right at the start that we don't yet have a breakdown between the two indications. That would be certainly useful. Um, moreover, also really like to see data from the dual blockade arm, that is the doubler of Opdivo and Yervoi. Um, that dual blockade PD-1 CTLA-4 it, uh, inhibition regimen has been shown to be very effective and very active in other indications. So it could be the case that that's what gives it the edge over Keytruda. Certainly be very interesting to see. Great. Thank you, Tom. I think we can move on to our last topic of the day, which is Lorbrenna. Okay. So last, but certainly not least. <laughs> um, so back in August, just as a little bit, bit of context, Pfizer announced that the phase three crown study met the primary endpoint by demonstrating significantly improved progression-free survival with third-generation ALK inhibitor Lorbrenna as compared to the previous standard of care, Zalcori. And then Pfizer's presentation at ESMO this year featured the first numerical phase three data from the Crown study uh, in the first line setting for the treatment of metastatic ALK positive non-small cell lung cancer. So per the presentation, Lorbrenna showed a statistically significant and clinically meaningful improvement in the primary endpoint of progression-free survival over Zalcori. Lorbrenna's medium progression-free survival was not yet um, available, although it did have a 12-month progression-free survival rate of 78.1%. And then the progression-free survival and 12-month progression-free survival rates for Zalcori were 9.3 months and 38.7% respectively. And they did provide the progression-free survival hazard ratio, which was 0.28 with an associated p-value less than 0.0001. So this progression-free survival benefit was seen across all subgroups, including smoking status and age. Additionally, the overall response rate with Lorbrenna was 76%, which was meaningfully higher than the 58% seen with Zalcori. Finally, 
The results presented showed that Labrena also demonstrated significant activity in patients with measurable or non-measurable brain metastases at baseline. However, this efficacy was also associated with a slightly higher toxicity. The Labrena arm had a 72% rate of grade 3 or 4 adverse events, while the Zalcori arm had a 56% rate of grade 3 or 4 adverse events. Uh, Lorbrenna also demonstrated a somewhat unique side effect profile that isn't typically seen with other ALK inhibitors. But overall, despite the side effect profile, these results are definitely promising and will likely support a first-line approval in ALK-positive metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Definitely a big update there. But uh, you mentioned a somewhat unique side effect profile. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, so that's a great question. Uh, Lorbrenna was actually designed to be highly brain penetrant, and unfortunately, it demonstrated a high rate of neurocognitive effects, which included mood effects and memory impairment in this study. Additionally, patients in the Lorbrenna arm had higher rates of hypercholesteremia and hypertriglyceridemia. So although these laboratory abnormalities can be easily controlled with medication, and patients did actually report higher quality of life scores with Lorbrenna, um, providers may shy away from prescribing Lorbrenna and instead prescribe Alicenza or Allenbrig, which have similar efficacy but a more familiar side effect profile. So Tara, if Lorbrenna is approved, how will it fit into the treatment paradigm? Yeah, so at this point, there's actually quite a few ALK inhibitors approved in the first-line setting. Uh, so Alicenza was the first in 2017, and it has really become the preferred treatment for ALK-positive non-small cell lung cancer. In its pivotal Phase three ALEC study, Alicenza demonstrated a statistically significant progression-free survival benefit over Zalcori as well. And then there's also Allenbrig, which was just approved in May of this year. And it also demonstrated superiority over Zalcori in the phase 1 ALTA 1L trial. And then finally, there's another ALK inhibitor called Insartinib that also recently demonstrated superiority over Zalcori in the phase 3 EXALT trial. Um, so all four of these drugs have demonstrated relatively comparable efficacy, but without head-to-head -head trials, it's difficult to tell if there are any significant differences in terms of efficacy. Um, so at this point, I think all of them are likely to get approved, and we really just need additional research to figure out what is the best sequencing, which is the best first line. Um, you know, are there any particular patients who would benefit more from one or the other? And you know, Lorbrana definitely has a unique side effect profile, which may ultimately hinder its uptake, but we really need to wait and see. Fantastic. Thank you, Tara. I think that about does it for our post-ESMO podcast. I want to thank you guys for presenting, and I want to thank everyone for listening. As mentioned previously, we also published a post-ESMO report that can be found on BiomedTracker as well as Data Monitor Healthcare. You can also find us and our various Informa Pharma intelligence platforms on Twitter. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you next time.